Hello everyone and welcome from here in the capital city of Austin, Texas. This is Capital Geek, a podcast dedicated to the founders and operators that create the products we love and turn them into fabulous companies with meaningful exits. Whether you're raising your first round of capital or racing toward an IPO, this is where we deep dive on the lessons learned from seasoned industry veterans, geeks of all types, the experts leading product and engineering teams, operations and finance, or sales and marketing, and we'll both learn from their mistakes and celebrate their successes while providing a roadmap for you to accelerate your own journey towards success. My name is Josh Stevens, CTO at Elsewhere Partners, and I am the Capital Geek. On this episode of Capital Geek, we geek out with my friend and colleague, Kevin Fishner, Chief of Staff at HashiCorp. We speak with Kevin about his time in several fast-paced startups, how his work at HashiCorp has evolved over the last several years, and best practices for getting the most from team collaboration. Kevin's passion for solving the hardest problems first, managing highly performant teams, and never-ending learning make this an episode that I won't soon forget. So without further ado, let's get to it. Kevin Fishner, the man, the myth, the legend. How are you today, sir? I'm well. How are you? It is a beautiful day to be in the great state of Texas. Look at it outside. I love it. It's kind of gray. Oh, the sun's out at my house. I really it's yeah. gray. It was raining and gray earlier today, but I have hope. I'm supposed to be playing tennis later today, so I'm hoping for the sun. Oh, that's awesome. I've uh, yeah. been trying to teach my 12-year-old how to play tennis, and uh, the other day we were playing, and it sounded like a rifle shot went off when my, I guess my ACL just popped really loud. And I, you know, I didn't tear it luckily. And I was able wow. to, you know, recover after a few months of therapy, but didn't require surgery, but man, it was, it was horrible. And you knew as soon as it hit, it was like, just snap. And then it was just, I couldn't move at all for quite a while. Wow. Yeah. That's definitely a traumatic event. <laughs> yeah. Well, Hey, I, I'd love to get into, you know, what you guys are doing at HashiCorp, but I always like to start sort of at the beginning and let the audience get to know you a little bit. So Maybe we could start with where you grew up and what your parents did and sort of how you got on this path that's put you here today. Yeah. Um, So I grew up in New Jersey and actually both of my parents uh, were and uh, my dad still is an entrepreneur. So my dad uh, has owned an auto parts warehouse in New Jersey for like the last 30 years. Um, And I spent summers working in in the uh, in the warehouse stocking shelves which uh, I actually really disliked, <laughs> but uh, it was good, good uh, discipline building, I guess. And then my mom, uh, when I was really little, owned a toy store, which was the best thing ever. And then um, after that, she owned like a collectibles store. So both my parents are small business owners um, in New Jersey. And then um, I went to college in North Carolina at Duke. And then like the day after graduation, I moved out to San Francisco and uh, was working on a company, uh, my own company at the time. And as most first startups do, it it failed very spectacularly. <laughs> and then I joined a startup called Keep, where I met Mitchell and Armand, uh, the founders of HashiCorp. And then after that, I joined HashiCorp. And I've been in that company for uh, six and a half years. Must have been pretty cool to have parents that owned auto parts and toys. I mean, growing up, those are the two things I wanted to tinker with, you know, mechanical things and, and toys. Did you realize at the time, did you think of them as entrepreneurs or did you just think of them as, you know, people that own those businesses? I, I didn't really internalize it at the time. And especially now the word entrepreneur, you think of like tech startup 
but it's often underappreciated how many entrepreneurs exist everywhere in the world and has small business owners and even large business owners, but are that are more local. And I think that's um, a beautiful thing, just having sustainable local businesses. I do too. My, my parents were both entrepreneurs, but I didn't reconcile that internally until maybe two or three years ago, actually. And my dad was a bricklayer and stonemason. He built a lot of fireplaces and houses and stuff. And my mom was a, a speech pathologist. And, you know, I knew a lot about their businesses. And I even helped my dad for several years in construction. And I understood, like, how the business operated in terms of the services they delivered. But I, I had no exposure to the business side of what they did. I kind of mm-hmm. wish they would have brought me into that because my dad was a uh, sort of a CFO minded entrepreneur. He managed things to the penny. He was very detail oriented and was a great money manager. Um, And my mom, uh, you know, she focused on helping people through her business. Uh, She dealt with a lot of, you know, children with severe speech and developmental problems, stroke patients, you know, some great use things that she did that I don't typically think about uh, as speech therapy or pathology, but you know, she had a, a blind child who had never learned any word association because, mm-hmm. you know, when someone would say, hand me an apple, they couldn't see the apple being handed, right? And so right. she had to help that person learn to speak. And then, you know, helping people learn to eat again after they've had a stroke or something was also something she specialized in was swallowing disorders. And when you have a child who's been on a feeding tube their whole life and you can teach that kid to take food orally and get that feeding tube out of there, it's a pretty magical thing. Yeah. So she, she changed a lot of people's lives up there and she still does it part-time, but she's mostly retired now. How do you think your parents both being entrepreneurs has affected you as uh, in your career? You know, I think the fact that I didn't reconcile that fact in fact until late probably delayed me moving from working within startups to running mm-hmm. my own startups um, because I hadn't really thought about it. And I think that there's this mystique around being an entrepreneur and running a company. And it, it sort of makes people who aren't doing it look at it and think it's, it's a very tall mountain to climb. Mm-hmm. You know, it's something that's very hard to do. But in reality, in today's modern age with, you know, SaaS applications for invoicing and billing and accounting and as easy it is to get started, I think it's much, much easier to run a business than it was in the past. And so my, my hope is that we begin to see just a, a big on-ramp in the number of startups and small businesses that are started, even in tech. And the interesting trend that I'm seeing, I don't, I don't know if you're seeing it yet, but it, I seem to be seeing some regionalization happen within some of these ecosystems. And cybersecurity is where I saw it first, where you know I would see a, a tech company startup in the UK, which had maybe 70, 80% of its business you know, within the UK, and then had some business for other places in Europe and Asia Pac and, and America. But, you know, traditionally, when you think about a healthy SaaS business or tech business in the U.S., 70-ish percent of their business is in North America, and the rest is spread abroad. But within cybersecurity, there seems to be uh, an inclination to sort of buy more locally. Mm-hmm. And I think GDPR probably drove part of that since it was adapted there sooner. But I think also the service delivery for things right. like cybersecurity you know, most of those companies offer some sort of services. And so it probably drives some local adoption in a, in a more significant way than it does globally. But I think it's a really interesting trend. 
Yeah, it makes sense. It sounds like the two most influential factors for regionalization are if there are local regulations that you have to comply with. So as you said, GDPR, and then the distribution of basically services versus software revenue. So if you're, if you have a heavy services distribution, then again, it would make sense to regionalize. One, one area that um, doesn't actually map to either is the buy now, pay later um, companies. So a firm in the US, Afterpay, which I think is Australian, and then there's a European company as well. So it's interesting to see that regionalized when there aren't really too many barriers to entry per each region. So I don't know. It's really fascinating. Um, and then when you add to that, the giant steps toward remote work that we've gone past the last year with COVID, you know, one of the things we do at Elsewhere Partners is we try to invest in underserved areas. We try to avoid traditional VC markets like Boston and New York and the Bay Area and LA. But nowadays, the location is, is so much less important because, you know, I invested in a company uh, last year called TestRigger. It's an autonomous testing product, automated QA for dev teams. And I remember when I talked to the founder, Artem, I was thinking the company was, was all in San Francisco. But he's, as a CEO, he's the only employee who actually lives in California. <laughs> and everybody else is spread around the globe. So it's really changed, I think, how we think about where a company is. I mean, is a company where the CEO is or is a company where the largest part of the team maybe lives? Yeah. I mean, for us, we're fully remote. Well, as remote as you can potentially get. So we have 1,200 employees and uh, 100 are in the, 150 are in the Bay Area. And we do have an office in SF that um, with, if COVID wasn't around, would be occupied. So I think... I think every company has a different reason or story with remote. And uh, we get asked about this a lot, like, should we go remote? Uh, how do you manage remote teams? And I usually try to encourage folks to think that um, does it match your product? So for us, we sell um, cloud infrastructure software that started as open source software. And many of our early employees were hired out of the open source contributor pool. It was very natural for us to be remote because that's the open source way. But I'm noticing companies are assuming they must go remote when their products are very not conducive to remote things. So I think there's going to be um, a little bit of a adjustment backwards to in-person offices and not assuming remote is the, is the way. Yeah, there was an article today that someone just sent me over Telegram. Um, I've got some pretty nerdy cybersecurity friends. <laughs> and, you know, if you're really into it, WhatsApp just isn't doesn't have a high enough level of encryption for typical cybersecurity professionals. So they always use Telegram. But he sent me an article from CNBC from today that uh, Jamie Dimon or Diamond, Diamond. I'm not sure, Jamie Diamond, Diamond. Yeah. you know, had said that they're fed up with, with Zoom calls and remote work and says commuting to offices will make a comeback. And they also quoted the CEOs from Goldman Sachs and David Solomon as, as also expressing concerns. And I, I would agree with you. I think there are certain types of work and certain types of product where it behooves you to have, um, you know, people together in, a, in yeah. the same place. At the same time, the hybrid mode is really interesting. Um, and I'll, I'll use my 12-year-old. My He'll be 13 this weekend, by the way. Happy birthday, Julius. <laughs> um, as an example, with, with what he has done at school. And, you know, the first part of the year, he was doing remote learning, and he struggled with it. He's a real extrovert. 
we put him back in school on campus and now he's doing really well. But, you know, if he woke up tomorrow and he had a slight fever, or he wasn't feeling great. There's no reason he couldn't join via Zoom until he were, were, was better. Yeah. And, you know, we, we spend a lot of time talking about COVID, but what we don't spend much time is talking about the fact that our COVID precautions we made for social distancing and things like that really drove down uh, flu and strep throat and the right. common cold and all these other things that we've been suffering through for years. And, you know, how many times have you gotten up in the morning prior to COVID and thought, oh, you know, I don't feel just great. I'm probably okay. I'm going to go to work, have an important <laughs> meeting and tough it out. Yeah. And then next thing you know, you and four or five of your friends are out for three or four days sick. I think the fact that you have the option of joining remotely anytime you need to is, is, is probably in some ways even better than the full-time remote work for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so. And especially folks with families that their schedules are a little bit, need to be more flexible. So people that are taking their kids to school or potentially taking care of a kid who's sick and home from school. So I think there's a lot of, definitely the flexibility that remote provides is a positive. And as a, as companies, as organizations, we just need to be careful about making sure the experience for people who are dialed in remotely, whether it's just for the day or always, um, is just as good as the experience for people in the office. And I think that's going to be one of the harder parts about companies going back into office where some employees are like, well, I'm just not going to do that. And then um, companies managing that, that hybrid experience. So for us, at least, we everything is designed remote first. So if you happen to be in an office, that's great, but still everything is designed remote first. So whether that's the way we make decisions through writing um, rather than in meetings, or when we do have in-person meetings, we're still have a Zoom up and people are joining. And ideally in the meetings that are the most well-run, um, you have people pr prepare beforehand, everybody gets time to speak. So that way people in the office can't just like keep talking and crowd out the people on Zoom. So we try to design practices to be, yeah, as I said, remote first and try to make a uh, more similar experience for everybody. That That's a great learning that you guys have established that culture there because I, I do most of my meetings remote and I try not to be overbearing and, you know, sort of listen first and you know, speak when needed. But I have noticed at times it's very difficult to get a word in yeah. while you're on the topic that you're trying to address. And so and it's awkward if you're two or three topics down and before there's a break in the pop in the conversation to go back to what you wanted to say. Yeah. I, I love that about what you guys are doing there. Yeah. And, and it's never perfect, of course. So if you're running a meeting, try to be aware that other people are, might want to say something. So once a topic is about to be wrapped up, you can say, all right, anybody uh, have anything final to say before we move on? So it's just, they're good, inclusive practices, regardless of whether you're remote or in person. But I think one of the nice things about remote is it allows you to question all of your practices. Like, how should we run meetings as a weird question to ask when everybody's in an office. But if you're doing a new type of work, which in this case happens to be remote work, it's a very normal question to ask. So it allows you to challenge assumptions and do some first principles thinking. What when you were in college, if, if I remember correctly, you didn't major in computer science or something like that, correct? No, I, uh, I had a double major in philosophy and public policy, and I minored in Russian. So nothing computer science related. Yeah, so what, 
what led you down the path of a computer science or, or tech career, you know, after starting from where you were? I was, I became interested in entrepreneurship um, and just, I guess, building products. So my, actually my college admissions essay I applied to the engineering school was um, something along the lines of if there's a problem, I would rather solve it through building a product than writing a policy. And then the greatest irony is then I majored in public policy <laughs> after that and philosophy, which is the most abstract possible thing. Um, but I still believe that uh, building something is, is the right way to solve a problem. Um, and I'm not opposed to policy by any means, but you, you kind of need to prove that there is, um, there's merit in building a solution and then policy kind of creates that in a more systematic way. So um, in my junior and senior year, I started to get more involved in entrepreneurship programs on campus. And then I um, worked part-time at an incubator in Durham called um, Groundwork Labs. <laughs> and that was part of like NC Idea, which was a lot of uh, provided funding to North Carolina startups. So I just got interested in it. And I think there was one book that really inspired me too, which was where good ideas come from, which uh, by Stephen Johnson, which is um, just about innovation and how many of the best innovations out there have come from remixing existing ideas. And he, he tells a lot of cool stories about that. So after college, or actually senior year, I was running a company. And then after college, I moved out um, to the Bay Area for a summer incubator program, kind of took it from there. But I think the entrepreneurial gene is kind of in, in me. Uh, because of my parents anyways. So, but it is interesting interacting with uh, students who studied comp sci, which is great, but I'm, I'm also grateful that I've been able to read kind of more esoteric philosophy things and, and have that background too, in addition to being, uh, being able to code and all that. Well, I think there's huge value in diversity of thought, you know, of mind. And one of my favorite CMOs, uh, Julie Albright, if you're out there, Julie, hello, you know, she, her degree was in uh, archaeology, if I remember right. And she actually traveled the world and did digs. And, you know, she's sort of like the Indiana Jones of, of our generation. But, you know, now she, she runs marketing for very technical software firms. I met her at SolarWinds. She was doing, she was in charge of all her creative stuff there. And just, you know, phenomenal person and resource. But I do think that that diversity of not going through a traditional computer science program and kind of where she headed, it, it gave her a perspective that that was highly valuable to the whole company. And I, I really appreciate that diversity. I, I love what you said about building products. You know, my dad, when I worked with him, I, I worked for him from the age eight to 18, roughly. So 10 years. And at the end of a project, you know, you had a product, a fireplace, a hotel, a home, and you can stand back and look at it. And if you're building from brick or, or stone, those things last a really long time. I can, even though my dad's passed away, I can drive to his part of the country and, you know, drive around and see homes he built or fireplaces, or, you know, he built the Meltillus Theater in Branson, for example. Um, and when I was consulting out of the military, I kind of missed that feeling because you get on these giant projects with no definite end. And while you're making progress, it was a little harder to stand back and say, hey, we built that thing. Be proud of that. That's awesome. But as a product manager, uh, you know, at SolarWinds and, and since then, as a product leader, that's, that's like my favorite part of it is being able to step back and say, look, team, we, we built this and people are using this to make their jobs easier and solve problems and build revenue and grow their companies. And that's a, I mean, I'm getting chill bumps talking about it. That, that's just to me an overwhelmingly positive feeling. Is that feeling different for you? 
in building something more abstract like software versus something more physical like a fireplace or? Well, I am, I am completely inept at building anything (laughs) short of a keyboard. (laughs) (laughs) So my brother, my dad, my uncle, my grandfather, very creative. You know, my dad built their home from scratch by himself. Uh, I lived in it my whole life uh, from the time I was two to 18 when I left home. And he had that kind of a mind. He could visualize it. He didn't need to write down plans. He planned it out in his head for a few weeks and figured out what he wanted to do. And then he would, he would go build it. I can't repair a toilet or paint a wall without <laughs> screwing something up, to be quite honest. But I do have the ability to be able to you know, code for a few weeks in my head and plan out an application and then sit down and build it. So, so for me, it's all about the keyboard. I, and, and quite frankly, if it wasn't for, you know, modern s- technology and software, I probably wouldn't be building anything other than maybe a stiff drink. <laughs> it, it is interesting, the uh, different acts of creation. And um, I think there's, there's beauty in both. For me, there is a little bit of difference between abstract software and, and physical things. Um, and one is not necessarily better than the others than the other, but especially building B2B products. You're building yeah. a product that helps other people build products that then serves a customer. So you're, you're abstracted away a fair amount, but that's what the definition of infrastructure is. You know, at SolarWinds in the early days, when we shift, started building Orion, we actually shipped it in you know, boxes that were a little bit taller and wider than a piece of, you know, than a sheet of notebook paper mm-hmm. and maybe four inches thick. And inside it had a printed copy of the manual and a DVD <laughs> with the software on it. And I think that making it tactile, having something physical, you could look at, you know, put in your hand and say, we built this, we did all the artwork that, that, you know, we wrote the documentation, we built the product, um, gave me some of that gratification, but make no mistake, when I look at things that my brother, Zach, and Zach, if you're out there listening, hello, uh, he, he works at SolarWinds still, he runs their customer retention and renewals department. Oh, before he left Austin uh, a year ago, he built this beautiful cabinet for this television out by the pool. It was all from tongue and groove. It was, it was just ornate and just gorgeous. And I'm so jealous about that because <laughs> he, you know, I, I agree with you. There is something special about things that you can build that are physical. I just don't have that skill set. <laughs> Never too late. Yeah, well, maybe, but I also don't have the aptitude. <laughs> I've kind of learned the hard way that I kind of had to stay away from that. <laughs> Not for you. One of the, um, things that I'm starting, I've just been reading about and I haven't gotten to the, the physical part yet, but just reading more about um, synthetic biology and some of the innovations coming in genomics. And there is cool. You can buy like bio kits and like extract DNA from strawberries and stuff. So I think that's going to be the, the physical thing I, I spend some time on. Just a little bit of a different uh, intellectual curiosity to pursue, I suppose. I'm, I'm very curious about what you're describing now. I find, I, I read a lot about that kind of research. I, I will, I guess the one thing I do physically um, is I train dogs. Okay. So I, I'm a judge for a German uh, dog club, all the versatile breeds coming out of Europe. And so I do field judging out in the field for search and rescue, for hunting situations, cool. blood tracking, pointing, retrieving, all those things. And so training the dogs. And then I became a judge because if, if I didn't, I would probably buy a new dog every year and I have, <laughs> you know, 10 of them outside. Yeah. Um, but, but I can go to a, an event every spring and fall and evaluate other people's dogs and get to know them a little bit over a few days and then come home and, and not feel like I had to do that. It's almost like being an uncle or a grandfather. <laughs> what is, so what is it, what are you in those, what do you judge? I guess, how do you judge the, how does that work? 
Well, in a, a puppy test, so when the dogs are, you know, six to 14 months of age, mm-hmm. we're evaluating five key things. Uh, how well they use their nose and leverage, you know, their powers there. Search. How's that, how's the, how's that measured? Do, you, do they have to like find something out in the field or? Well, the way we, we measure use of nose in a few ways. Um, as part of the test, we, as a group, will go out and we'll keep the dogs on lead. And then when we find a jackrabbit, we do these out, out in the West, mostly like in Idaho and places like that. We, we hide the dog's eyes where the dog can't see. And as the rabbit creates a track for the next three or 400 yards, we watch that track where it is mm-hmm. and, and even draw a picture of it many times in a notebook. And then we'll bring the dog up and put the dog on that track. And the dog, we, we evaluate how well the dog follows the track and uses its nose during that following, especially if it has to cross like dry terrain or, um, you know, a gravel bed or a road or something like that. Also, when we're in the field doing pointing work, you know, how well the dog uses the wind, does it, does the dog really understand how powerful the tool it has with its nose? We can't evaluate the quality of nose because we don't know what the dog's smelling, but we can evaluate how well the dog uses that tool. And dogs that are very gifted, their, their nose will just sort of carry them throughout the whole day. You can kind of tell that their eyes are there and they sort of leverage them, but their nose is just dragging them across the field throughout the entire day. <laughs> and so use of nose, uh, tracking, pointing, cooperation, uh, is the dog working in collaboration with its handler or is it working independently? That's a big part of it. And so I just really enjoy that. The, the next test after that, when the dog is older, are sort of 50-50, the, the handler and the dog, and it's a very cooperative test. And there's a lot of obedience and things like that later on, but I just really enjoy my bearded dogs. Um, <laughs> they're, they're, you know, members of the family here at home. So I can't imagine life without them. How did you, was, was that something that was um, kind of an interest since childhood or is this more of a new? No, I've, I've been an avid uh, bird dog fan for lack of a better term since <laughs> I was probably eight years old. Okay, cool. um, one of my teachers, uh, Carol Ward, if Carol, if you're out there listening, um, had heard that we'd had bad luck. I'd gotten a puppy and it had died of parvo yeah. and we brought an older dog that someone had given us and it died within a few weeks of the same disease. And they had an older English setter that they kept tied up in the yard. And when they would let him loose, he would kind of run wild. And so they said, look, I don't know if you can turn this dog into anything usable, but you're welcome to have him if you can. And his name was Champ. And hopefully I can talk about him without getting teared up. <laughs> but um, I never kept the dog tied or chained or, or in a cage, just loose on our farm. And he slept on the porch and that dog hunted for me every day until the day, including the day he died, 12 years old. And I think that the reason that he ran so wild for them was that they kept him tied up all the time. So when they let him loose, he wanted to run, but you know, we left him loose all the time. And so he really got me hooked on on the bug of, of getting into bird hunting. And over the years, I tried English setters and English pointers and some cocker spaniels and, and several different kinds of labs. And I had a great German short-haired pointer that lasted me for several years. Her name was Bailey. <clears throat> and she was just a phenomenal dog. And then I moved to Texas uh, in 2005. And it's a long ways to get from where we are in Austin to where I like to hunt pheasants and quail and grouse you know, farther north. And so I started getting into waterfowl and I needed a dog that could do all of those things you know, blood tracking, waterfowl retrieving, pointing, all those things in one. And I needed a dog that was hardy enough to be able to withstand, you know, cold water and cold temperatures. Yeah. And a, a friend of mine, Matt Preston, uh, who works over at MongoDB now, hey, Matt, 
he had one of these dogs, uh, a Deutsch Drahar, uh, which is the original version of what many people in America might call a German wire-haired pointer. And this dog was just outstanding, you know, and, and the dog was very durable. As a matter of fact, one of the complaints about the dogs is that they're so durable that you often don't realize they're injured until they're gravely uh, injured. Uh-huh. You know, they have a really, you know, you have to really watch them because they'll just power through and, and then, you know, be in really bad shape. So I hunted with that dog a few weekends uh, out of an airboat in South Texas and just fell in love. And I think I've owned, not counting the puppies, I've, I've you know, uh, bred probably eight in the last nine wow. or 10 years. Um, I just, I just love these dogs. I have three right now um, that'll probably come in the room here any moment. <laughs> uh, you guys have, you have, have a dog or? No, we don't, we don't have a dog. Uh, I did grow up with dogs though. I grew up with Bouviers, if you're familiar with that. Yeah. Breed. So they're, they're big dogs. <laughs> But similarly, we let them run around the, we had a decent amount of property in New Jersey. So they were always running around and chasing deer and doing all that fun stuff. Yeah, that's cool. So after you left uh, college and, and uh, Roundwork Labs, tell me, tell us about, is it Keep? Is that how you pronounce it? Keep. Keep. Yeah. 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 um, So Keep was a mobile ad network and the, I guess, twist on it was the ads were rewards that were displayed at times of accomplishment in different apps. So if you like beat a level in a game, you might get 15% off at Nike or something like that. So it was a way for brands to engage with consumers in a, in a positive and as least interruptive way as possible on mobile. So there was kind of two parts of the business. One was brand advertising. So that was like big brands, McDonald's, Pepsi, Nike, et cetera. And then performance advertising. So that was smaller companies that were focused on a specific user cost per acquisition, CPA. Um, So that might've been Uber or today DoorDash, things like that, that run lots of performance campaigns. So um, I was responsible for the performance advertising group. Uh, was there for about two years, uh, which in retrospect was a very short period of time, but in startup years, that's above average, I guess. And that's where I met Mitchell and Armand. So Armand was the the developer at the company and Armand and Mitchell um, ran ops, so infrastructure ops. So became friends. And then when they were looking for someone in there was to do the business things at HashiCorp, I was, <laughs> I was their person. So it's worked out pretty well. You know, I, I'm noticing, I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile that you were the director and then the VP of growth uh, at Keep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is 2012 through 14. I don't think I saw many people that had a title with growth in the, in the title very often until the last year or two, really. You, you were kind of ahead of the curve there. And then I see when you went to HashiCorp, you ran sales and marketing and then product management before you moved into the current role. Maybe talk to us about how your experience in being responsible for revenue growth directly helped you sort of make the jump into product management. I mean, the kind of service level answer, of course, is spending a lot of time with users and customers helps you understand their problems and you can take those problems in a product management role, distill them and work with engineering to solve them. So the exposure and access to the information flow that customers and users provide is certainly a big advantage. My career path has been a little bit odd in that there's not, it's not like I've stayed in product management and progressed in that area. And the approach that I've taken is just trying to think through things from first principles and solving some of the more ambiguous problems that a company faces. So at Keep, I spent a lot of time when I first started just understanding the 
performance data of the ad network. So asking questions like which ads do best in which apps. So maybe a Nike ad does very well in a sports game, but does terribly in a puzzle game. And we started to optimize um, ads based on those insights. And then we realized that we needed to increase the number of um, basically brand types in the ad network to be able to have more optimization levers to pull. So if you have 200 campaigns running at a time, you can place them in many different apps. You don't need to run just one campaign in every app. So it was from that insight to st- that we started the performance ad group. So it's a thought process of um, understanding what data drives the business, understanding the problems that is, are surfaced in that data, and ideally solving the problems that, that come from it. So um, it certainly has helped to have a lot of access to users and customers and data. Um, and I think that's useful for whatever role someone might be in. No, I... The titles I held earlier in my career were pretty different than yours, but in terms of what I focused on, very, very similar. Um, big fan of first principle thinking and understanding the business and applying focus wherever it can be the most beneficial. That's super impressive and awesome. I, and I must say the first time I met you, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago, one of the smartest jobs I've ever met, you just blew me away. Uh, and I love seeing what you've done with your career and you know, what you're doing now. Maybe talk to us a little bit about the chief of staff role. Sure. So the, well, first of all, thank you for the compliment. That's nice, nice, nice to hear. First off, with chiefs of staff, uh, the role is different at every single company because in a similar way to product management, you kind of fill the space that is left by other functions. So in some companies, the interactions between finance and HR and product work a certain way that leave a, leave a gap and you fill that gap. So for my role at HashiCorp specifically, because I've been at the company for a long time, um, I have pretty decent understanding of where those gaps are. And for us, uh, when I started in the role 18 months ago, our um, biggest gap was the way that we set and review goals across the company. So this is what we call our operating cadence, um, which we call an operating cadence intentionally because many companies might call this like a goal setting process, but for us, it's much more important the act of reviewing progress and making adjustments than the act of setting goals. Mm, interesting. Um, and I think sometimes companies really spend a lot of time on like setting OKRs and cascading them down into every employee. And then they never review them, which is really frustrating for employees because they're like, well, I just spent all this time figuring out my goals and now we're never going to talk about it again. And that's just kind of a poor experience. So for us, we do set goals at the beginning of the fiscal year and then review progress kind of snapshots of progress every week and then a thorough review every quarter. So that was an area that we just needed to be a little bit more structured about. And then I've also spent times on things like knowledge management, internal communication frameworks, uh, some outbound marketing, um, like how HashCorp works, where we documented our core working practices. So they're kind of just gaps left in the org structure that needed to be filled And then um, each of those things I've handed off to different groups. So the operating cadence will be handed off to finance, knowledge management, and internal comms will be handed off to an internal comms team within marketing. So for me, at least the chief of staff role is not a, probably not a permanent one. It's more of like a two-year tour, I suppose. Um, But again, it's different for everybody. Yeah, I think for a lot of us, two years in the same function or same role is is about where we lose interest or, you know, becomes... A little too easy to be interesting in some ways. 
I love what HashiCorp does in terms of not just the products, obviously. I mean, I'm a super geek and I love Terraform <laughs> and all the other products, but the fact that you guys have, have publicized sort of how you worked internally, it's just, it's a very elegant way of ascribing value within a product because of how it was built, not just what it can do that you don't see very many companies do. And, you know, I, I think that, I think for many people, myself included, it sort of raises the level of respect that I have for the company as a whole. And it provides me a way to have a little bit more of what feels like an intimate relationship with the people that are building the products that I'm using. Yeah, that, that's definitely a big part of it is the same way that we've built a community around the open source products. Can we build a closer relationship around just the way the company works and um, people who are applying and going through the interview process to have that more uh, intimate relationship? And it, it actually has been one of the, the nice side effects of it has been new, um, of course, new employees, but also people going through the interview process know a bit better what to expect and what it's like to work here as a result. I think it's hard for me as an investor not to think about what you're doing and think, well, how value, how valuable that mode of operations could be for an investment group, you know, where you have three or four companies in your portfolio that are doing really well and you create best practices from how they run their business that you can then propagate to other businesses that you might invest in in the future. A lot of organizations are spending a tremendous amount of time and money creating curriculum and product-led growth training and, and, and processes. And, you know, a lot of companies, you know, Y Combinator and several others kind of focus on helping their teams learn how to be successful entrepreneurs. But there's something very genuine about, and authentic about a company that's doing what HashiCorp is doing, and they're willing to expose how they do it. You know, it's, it's like a chef exposing their recipes, their cookbook. And a novice chef might think, oh, well, if I put my recipes out there, then, you know, what value do I really have as differentiated from anybody else? But a really experienced chef knows that even if you have the recipe written down, it's not going to taste the way that, that they make it. And you still need to make more recipes later. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's a really great point. Yeah. So, so what's next? I mean, you've had this super fascinating career over the last 20-ish years. What, what are you thinking about next? I mean, you know, sometime in the future when, when you've exited HashiCorp and, and how are you thinking about next steps? So I, I do get asked this question a lot. And uh, if you asked me this question probably, I don't know, six to 12 months ago, I would have answered it differently than today. But my answer is, I don't know. And I'm not going to try to figure it out for a while. <laughs> oh, I respect the hell out of that. I, I really do. Yeah. I probably wouldn't be anywhere that I am now, if I had tried to plan out that far ahead, you know, I mean, yeah. certainly I've had goals that extended, you know, for decades, but the path to get there, windy, it's windy. And, and there are many detours and alternate routes that life forces you down uh, to put you in places you didn't expect to be. But wow, I, man, I'm just blown away by some of the things you've done and, and your answers here. <laughs> Thanks. I do. One thing that's interesting to me is um, kind of the idea of chapters of life. And mm -hmm. I don't, I mean, I, I genuinely don't know what all, what will the future will hold, but I am interested in like starting from zero again and just something completely different and that feeling of being a novice and learning 
uh, again, is, is very enjoyable. So who knows, but uh, it'll definitely take time and space to, to figure it out. I love the concept of chapters in life. Um, I think about it a lot because when I'm trying to describe who I am to investors or, you know, on a podcast or something, you know, I was in the military and in an engineering career and, and mm-hmm. I stayed an engineer for 10 ish years. Um, but then I moved into, you know, management and, and ran consulting companies and moved into product management for several years. And in, in doing that, you know, I, I was able to then move into a new career as an investor and advisor. And it's, for me, it's almost uh, like I'm finding new ways to feed the addiction at higher volumes. <laughs> you know, early on, I was building one thing as, as a time as an engineer. As a product leader, you're building, you know, multiple products at a time doing that. And, and now as an investor, you know, I've got going on a couple dozen companies and they yeah. each have great teams and multiple products and in different market segments. And I'm just a glutton for information and for learning. <laughs> Yeah. And so, you know, the, the experience of being able to drink from the fire hose every single day is what I enjoy most in life. I, my, my grandfather passed away a few months ago and I went over to his house and he had uh, two sets of Encyclopedia Britannica, probably <laughs> from the 60s. And I remember reading both sets of those encyclopedias probably a dozen times, you know, mm-hmm. as a kid. I cannot imagine what a kid like me would have done with the Internet. <laughs> Because yeah. I probably would have just been glued to it twenty four seven. Yeah. Do do you um in your like current life do you feel that the volume of information? How do you how do you deal with the volume of information, both in good and bad ways? That's a really good question. I, I want you to answer it after I do. But in terms of bad ways, you know, I, I tend to lack focus at times, and mm-hmm. I also tend to sit in this chair for way too long <laughs> every day. Because there's, there's always more you can learn and, and more you can do. I've, I've learned to set some pretty strict rules around where to spend my focus. You know, I really try hard only to advise companies I invest in. Mm-hmm. And I really try hard to only invest in companies that if they need my help, I feel qualified to, to chip in. In doing that, you know, that forces me into thinking about, okay, well, if I'm an investor versus an investor advisor versus a board member versus you know, an active operating role. How do I think about how much of my time to give to those things? And I think the time management has probably been something I've had to learn a lot the last few years because the diversity of projects has grown so substantially. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one of the lessons learned the hard way of going through the growth of HashiCorp is definitely time management. So I'm, yeah. I'm very structured with how I spend my time now and my mornings are all, almost always two to three hours of heads down time to be able to do focused work. Structuring time is definitely helpful and it, it definitely can limit the information overwhelm feeling. But I'm also, I try to be really careful about not having anything that has a information feed on my phone. Cause I just know it's addicting, but it's going to be interesting. I'm curious actually how your son deals with information. Like how does he consume information? Cause I'm curious how future generations are, like, is there awareness that news, like information feeds are an addictive, potentially not positive? You know, I think I, I by the way, I have two sons and a grandson. So um, <laughs> when I think about my sons, especially the, the 12, almost 13 year old, I don't think he's consuming information voluntarily yet. I mean, he's playing a lot of video games, meeting with friends. Yeah. He, he's one of these children who is more socially forward online than he is in person. 
Okay. And so like in person, he tends to be very quiet and reserved when he's playing video games with three or four buddies at night. <laughs> I mean, he's slapping Shouting. the floor and jumping <laughs> up and down and shouting. And yeah. so he hasn't had to, to tackle that yet, but you know, I was thinking about what you asked and I would say the other thing that has really changed for me is I've learned that in business, it's okay to be more direct and blunt and that too much tact can cost you velocity. Mm-hmm. And so like if I'm you know, in a meeting with a founder here in your pitch and they're spending a lot of time talking about things that I'm not going to base my decision on, I'm pretty comfortable now just stopping them and saying, look, that's not of interest at this point. Like maybe come back to that later, but here are things I need to understand right now. Yeah. Just telling them in plain words. And I think that's something I've had to work on over the last couple of years, but I've gotten a lot better at it than I used to be. There's, it's interesting you say that. It's saying that we as a company, so one of our principles is kindness. We've had to differentiate and Armand says this best. There's a difference between kindness and niceness. And being nice is like kind of being reticent and sharing feedback. Yes. But you can be kind and give feedback at the same time. And it's actually a kind act to do. And the example you gave of a startup founder kind of going in a direction that's not relevant, it is the kind thing to do to say, hey, it's interesting, but that's not the most important right now. Let's focus on this. Because otherwise, if you don't share that, they're never, well, first, you're probably not going to invest, which is the thing they're trying to do. And then even uh, if you don't invest, they're not going to get better next time. So being nice doesn't actually help the person in a way that being kind and giving that feedback would do. I, I would agree with you. I mean, as a personality type. I'm sort of a teacher. I've, I've taught all my life and I, if it paid more, I'd be doing it full time, I would imagine. And, and, you know, and so sometimes, you know, you can teach and be kind, but you know, you can't be too nice or they may not learn. Right. And I think that's a, a valid point. I love that. that the, who, who was it? You said that. That was Armand. Oh, Armand. Yeah. So it's, um, it's tough though. I've, I've struggled with that too, of like not wanting to hurt someone's feelings in the short term, but that doesn't really help them in the long term. Yeah. You know, I was thinking that the thing that's helped me the most, this is probably counterintuitive, but about a year and a half ago, I had to start wearing reading glasses. <laughs> and since then, my eyesight's gotten worse. And one way that I limit information flow is when I take these glasses off, I, I can't read my phone <laughs> or the screen. I yeah. can't see anything up close. <laughs> and so I make it a rule. When I leave my office, I leave my glasses take on my desk. Glasses. You know, it's, it's worked pretty well. I think um, there's a really good book called Atomic Habits and the general gist of it is if you're trying to build a habit, don't rely on willpower, change your environment that is conducive for that habit. So what you just shared is a perfect example of using your environment and what you're in your case is your glasses to limit the behavior of reducing your information consumption, which um, instead of having to rely on your willpower, which is finite and gets reduced throughout the day, you kind of fix it with the environment, which I think is very elegant. And it's kind of a way to use nature versus nurture debate, the nurture side of it, you can use it for yourself. I, I love that. You know, I think the other thing I do is I, I just try not to use my laptop in bed anymore. Some of the worst emails I've sent in my career, <laughs> some that almost cost me relationships were sent late at night. I'm exhausted. I'm spun up. I can't stop my mind spinning and I'm yeah. blasting out emails that I probably shouldn't have. By the way, that's two great books that you've recommended that I haven't read. Atomic Habits by James Clear. And second one was Where Good Ideas Come From, which is by Steven Johnson. We use Otter AI. I don't know if you should check that Otter, but they have a great yeah. product for transcribing voice. Super impressive. I was shocked that it worked so well. Yeah. Well, hey, Kevin, it's been great having you on the show. I had a complete blast. I hope you had fun too. Love to have you on the show again sometime, maybe on a panel or to just catch up with you. Sure. 
Yeah, that sounds great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Josh. Right, thanks. That's it, everyone. And thank you for joining Capital Geek. Subscribe via Apple, Stitcher, or any platform where you usually find fantastic podcasts. Tune in again soon for another great episode of Capital Geek.